ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What would you think if a friend told you this? He's punched me in the face and broken my teeth. Oh, my goodness. The incident where he punched me in the face, he just stood there and stared at me like the lights were on, but nobody was home. There was a vacant look on his face. Just zero remorse. It's a loaded term, but colloquially, you might refer to a person who'd do this and fail to feel any remorse as a psychopath. People with psychopathy, and we'll talk about exactly what that means, make up about 1% of the adult population. But here's the thing, it can only be diagnosed in adults. It's not a childhood diagnosis. How old was he when he broke your teeth? Oh, that was before he was in hospital, so he would have been about seven, seven or eight. Oh my goodness. So despite the rather extreme behaviour... He broke a after-school care worker's finger. He's dislocated his father's shoulder. Nicole's son wouldn't be considered a psychopath. Brains are constantly developing, so you can't look at a kid and say, this person is definitely going to be a psychopath. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. So kids aren't labelled psychopaths for a variety of good reasons. But there are a set of behaviours that emerge in childhood that can be precursors to adult psychopathy. They're called callous, unemotional traits. And often they're accompanied with aggression. Once the other side kicks in, you're scared of him. You, you don't go near him. So in today's episode, which first aired in December 2022, we're going to explore what callous unemotional traits are exactly, how early they emerge, how closely they're tied to psychopathy, and whether they can be treated. And one family story dealing with all of that. During that sort of journey with getting various diagnoses and things, were you ever clearly told that your child is displaying callous unemotional traits and this is an early you know, sign of psychopathy. Like, what were those terms ever put to you? Not directly, no. Yeah. In private discussions with certain people, the words have been bandied around, and yet I honestly believe, although I can't speak for her, that Dr Shannon has had the belief since Matthew was very young that he was a psychopath. He shows psychopathic tendencies. You know, you don't break cat's legs and snap fish in half and remove shells from hermit crabs and watch them die. That's far from normal behaviour for a kid. Uh, But it is raining. (laughs) The rain never ends. Um, I want to start this episode by telling you a little bit about Nicole, the mother you've been hearing from in the intro. (laughs) Firstly, she has to be one of the most generous interviewees we've had on. We spoke on two occasions, both times she came into the ABC on her day off. We're recording. And she was so open and honest about her family's experiences. As you'll hear, she is unwavering in her love for both her sons. So I'll get you to start maybe just by... Telling me a little bit about your family. How many of you are there and how old are your sons? Okay, so there are four of us. There's myself. I'm 50. My husband's 53. Our eldest son, Jake, is 22. And our youngest, Matt, who just turned 19. 
My husband and I are childhood sweethearts and been together since I was 15. Wow. I'm a conveyancing paralegal and my husband is a technician service manager for an environmental company. Gosh, high school sweethearts, that's so lovely. (laughs) It's unusual these days. These details are relevant because Nicole is keen to bust some of the stereotypes that surround families like hers. More on that later. And so your youngest son, Matt, what was he like as a baby? Matt was one of those chunky monkey babies. (laughs) He was layer upon layer of that gorgeous baby fat. Mm. He was very cuddly, very playful, liked to be the centre of attention all the time. (laughs) But he was a gorgeous charmer. He he makes everybody laugh. So there weren't any signs at that stage that there was anything wrong? Not when he was a baby. Um, Matt's issues started when he was around about three. When Matt was three, he started becoming aggressive, like way more than your average toddler. He was being extremely defiant, would spit, would bite. It was constant. Right. It wasn't frequency, not the word. It was on a daily basis. Initially, Nicole and her husband hoped it was a phase, something Matt would grow out of. But by age five or six, he was starting to hurt animals. He would come home with this aggression from school or he'd leave from home already revved up. Mm. He would come home and kick the dog or, you know, muck around with the cats and hurt them. And it was just a scary time because it was something that just wasn't normal. Nicole says Matt was pretty big and strong for his age. And by seven or eight years old, he was targeting people. The violence escalated awfully. He dislocated his father's shoulder. He's punched me in the face and broken my teeth. There was also the time he broke his after-school care teacher's finger. He was trying to get into the kitchen to climb out the kitchen window at the school grounds. And she was trying to stop him. And he didn't want to be stopped. So he simply just turned around, grabbed a finger and snapped it. And that was simply because he didn't want to be contained. Around this time, Nicole also started noticing a particular look Matt would get sometimes. Or maybe it's better described as the absence of a look. It's like a glazed look. Um, I don't know, people who do drugs, you see their pupils dilated and... They look zombie-like. Wow. You know, the incident where he punched me in the face and broke my tooth, he just stood there and stared at me like his father was just about to kill him. Mm. But he just stood his ground, stared. It was seriously like the lights were on, but nobody was home. There was a vacant look on his face. Yeah, when does that look typically come on? Is it when he's violent? Yeah, absolutely. It's only when he's violent. When Matthew's good, Matthew's fine. He can be the most loving kid, like he's the one who hugs and kisses me and, you know, I love you every time I speak to him. He He's sweet like that. But once the other side kicks in, you're scared of him. You, you stay away as long as you possibly can. But some of these rages that he has, they can go for days. And so did he just sort of lack impulse control or empathy or just struggle with anger? Or like what was emotionally going on for him? All of those things. Matthew had no empathy whatsoever, had no impulse control. But first time he'd ever physically punched me, 
I would have thought that his first reaction was, oh, my God, I've punched mum. Jeez, mm. and stood back and do the whole, oh, I'm so sorry. But it wasn't that at all. That was what the frightening part was because mm. he showed no remorse for it whatsoever. And not even later on did he ever apologise for it. He he was angry and you couldn't figure out why. We've lost track of how many doors in our house we've replaced and he was probably about seven and he literally tore through his bedroom wall and door and we ended up having to put metal panelling so he couldn't kick through the walls and doors anymore. Things came to a head when Matt was eight years old. He was running away from school lots. It was impossible to get him to go. We would physically have to put him in the car in his pyjamas and the principal would come up to the car park and help us trying to get Matthew into class. Even when he made it, he would often run away. And one incident landed him in a locked psychiatric ward for three months. We had police called to the school because he ran off. They eventually found him at my parents' home and he was pinned down on the the grass in their front yard by three big burly police. That incident got him into the mental health unit, senior son in a seclusion room, which is a padded room with security inside with him. At that age, he was eight, that was very confronting and that instance he was actually admitted on an involuntary order. We lost all control or power or or decision making. We got to see him for a couple of hours a day. That was it. Nicole says that was one of the scariest moments for her during Matt's childhood. Yeah, he was so young. He was the youngest person in there. Wow. And he was alone and... Yeah, it was awful. It was awful. So the notion that a very small minority of people can present as callous and without remorse and seemingly lacking a moral conscience has been documented in really literature that goes as far as the 5th century BC. This is Dr John Cassanathan. He's a forensic child and adolescent psychiatrist and an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of New South Wales. You know, back in the time of Socrates, people mentioned about certain individuals that seem to have no moral compass or no sense of right or wrong. That The term psychopathy was first really clearly articulated in, in the 1950s to, to 70s. In the popular imagination, the term psychopath conjures all sorts of monstrous images. Think serial killers or even maniacal bosses, corporate psychopaths. The stigma associated with the diagnosis is part of the reason kids are not labelled as psychopaths. But more crucially... The part of the brain that's involved in emotional regulation, that's involved in in building empathy, uh, it's growing and it's maturing and it's getting more complex year on year. Mm. So you can't look at a kid and say, this person is definitely going to be a psychopath. And and it's it's probable that those kids that appear to have callous and unemotional traits, actually a significant proportion of them won't persist 
onto adolescence. Some do. And what they found is that, you know, around 60% may persist onto early adolescence. But then through adolescence, you know, a significant proportion of them will resolve. And also the term psychopath, as your audience will know, does have a lot of negative connotations for the public and indeed even for health systems and the justice system. And really the appropriate term is callous and unemotional traits. So what exactly does callous, unemotional traits mean then? Like, what does it actually look like? So callous, unemotional traits describe a cluster of symptoms, including a lack of empathy, remorse when doing something that you're not supposed to do, um, a callousness towards others. This is clinical psychologist and professor of psychology Eva Kimonis from University of New South Wales. She's also president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Psychopathy. And also what we describe as shallow and deficient affect. So that's sort of like a not a deep experience of emotion or a using of emotion to get things where you can easily turn your emotions on or off. In kids, what parents or caregivers notice is that these children don't seem to respond in the usual emotional expressions that other children would in terms of either happiness or sadness or even anger, they kind of look very limited in the way that their face is. Remember when Nicole described her son Matt's blank stare after he punched her? It was seriously like the lights were on, but nobody was home. There was a vacant look on his face. That's what this is describing. Dr. Castanathan says less than 1% of children present with callous unemotional traits probably sits more closer to uh, one in a thousand to five in a thousand. So we're talking about a really small amount of children. By comparison, about 6% will present with aggression. And that tends to be diagnosed as either oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder. So violence is, is a broader, or aggression is a broader issue. So not every child that's aggressive has callous and unemotional. But the ones that do, they are the ones more likely to end up with psychopathy later on. It's callous and emotional traits that have that research interest because they have a higher percentage chance of progressing to youth psychopathic traits in in adolescence. While we're on definitions, let's clear up what it means to have psychopathy as well. So a psychopathy is really a cluster of several different traits. First is basically the callous, unemotional traits we've been talking about. Second, we've got arrogant and deceitful interpersonal style, which describes people who are manipulative and bold. Third, we've got an impulsive and irresponsible lifestyle. Um, And then fourth, which is the more sort of contentious aspect of psychopathy, is the antisocial behaviour things like aggression, destruction, delinquent behaviour, criminality. Contentious because not all people with psychopathy are in fact violent. It's a common misconception. But coming back to the precursors of psychopathy in childhood, Dr. Cassanathan says when kids with callous unemotional traits are aggressive, they tend to express it in a distinct way. 
the classic presentation are kids that present with cold aggression. So when I say that, what I mean is aggression can sometimes be classified into cold and hot. So hot or reactive aggression is if a kid is getting picked on by another kid at school, they'll respond in a very reactive, hostile way and it will escalate into a fight. But the, the ones that present with cold aggression are those that are planning aggression in a very calculated way and can sometimes be rather manipulative or targeted in the way that they harm somebody. I wanted to put this description to Nicole to see if it matched her son Matt's behaviour. Her response? It's pretty spot on. Um, look, I, I, I can tell you of several incidences, but he attacks something that means something to you. So we were having a um, Christmas barbecue not too many years ago, in fact, and, you know, having friends over and I'd had all out back entertainment area all set up and plates and glasses and Matt was seething over something and I'm a bit of a house proud kind of person and like everything perfect mm. and um, he, he decided that he'd go out and smash all my wine and champagne glasses that I had set up just to purposely upset me, oh. um, of course, which it did. And that seems to be his thing. He will target something that's important to us or means something to us. How do you contain a person like that? Are you just living on eggshells all the time? Pretty much. That's how my husband and I put it all the time. You do. You live on eggshells. Sometimes you're glad when you come home and he's not there. And so at any point, like between, you know, hurting animals, punching you now as an adult, has he ever had any sort of explanation for why he does the things he does? No. Or is that sort of beyond him to be able to explain? No explanation whatsoever. Sometimes... Back when he was younger, he, he wouldn't even remember stuff that he'd done or stuff that he'd said. What do we know about why these kids are like this? Are their brains different? Like, why are they incapable of feeling remorse or all the rest of it? There's a great deal of evidence showing that there's this core emotional deficit that you can see at multiple levels in their bodies and their brains. So when they uh, see somebody who's in distress, so crying, afraid, it's not registering in their attention, in their bodies. So if you know, you're walking down the street and you're seeing somebody that's bleeding or hurt, mm. you know, as a healthy person, we're going to, our attention's going to go to that person and, and have concern. Whereas that's not necessarily the experience of the person with psychopathic traits. It's they either have sort of a lack of that experience or a muted experience. And there's also quite a bit of evidence that there's differences in the emotional centers of the brain. So you probably, you're, you're familiar with the amygdala, the paralimbic system, and these are the parts of the brain that really respond to emotion. And we see that in children with callous unemotional traits, in adults with psychopathic traits, those emotional centers of the brain do not activate like they do for other people. Then there's the role genetics play. We know that aggressive behavior in children with high levels of callous unemotional traits appears to be strongly genetic. It's a family history of particular genes that are coming through. However, aggressive behaviour in children with low levels of callous and emotional traits, so these are kids that are aggressive but then they don't have the callous and emotional traits, that was for the most part in some research explained by environmental factors. So that could be childhood neglect, childhood abuse, low socioeconomic status of, of families. So it is still a genetic and environmental contribution. It just seems to be that the behaviours of these kids maybe more heritable. When you talk to parents of these kids and you tell them what's going on, 
How do how do parents react? Like, it must be pretty devastating to hear that this is what's going on with your child. Or is there denial? The parents that we're working with in my clinic, they've, they've really come to us for help. So they know that there's a problem. It, it's causing you know, a lot of distress for them. So they know that there's a problem and they need a different approach to trying to address their um, aggressive and their destructive and their non-compliant types of behaviours. And that's really what we've been working on in my clinic. Here's the thing about treatments. There are none for psychopathy in adulthood. For kids, the treatments that exist mainly target aggression. So diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder. And the treatments actually focus on parents and their behaviour. So programs like Triple P, Positive Parenting Program, and Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, which is considered the gold standard treatment for kids with conduct problems. But Professor Kimonis says these don't really address the unique, separate problems that kids with callous and emotional traits have. And that's because the problem doesn't necessarily lie in the parenting mm. um, like it does that like it may for other kids with conduct problems. We're only just now starting to develop treatments for this population, and until now they've had to rely on sort of the other treatments that we have out there, which we know aren't necessarily normalizing their problems. Professor Kimonis is trying to close this gap. She and her colleagues have developed a modified version of parent-child interaction therapy. They've tailored it to address the issues kids with callous and emotional traits face. And it's shown some promising results in a randomized controlled trial. So what are the issues it addresses? Well, first, their therapy focuses on increasing the warmth and emotional closeness in the relationship between the parent and child. Because we do see evidence that kids with callous and emotional traits and adults with psychopathy experience lower levels of warmth and more problematic parent-child attachments. How they work on upping the warmth factor is by having a therapist watch a parent and child play and interact from behind a two-way mirror. And the therapist feeds lines and encouragement to the parent in real time via an earpiece. So you're, you're doing a great job looking him in the eyes right now. I love how you're sitting so closely. Next, the therapy aims to de-emphasize punishment, things like timeouts, as a form of discipline because these kids don't really care. They're not as responsive to these sorts of punishment-based strategies. Uh, but instead, we do know that they are really reward-driven. And then the third part involves coaching children to better recognize emotions, especially distress. So we help them learn, you know, what are those micro-expressions on the face that tell us that we're afraid or that tell us that we're sad? In their randomized controlled trial, the results of which were published this year, Professor Kimonis and her colleagues found their modified therapy produced a lasting change in behaviour. The gains kids made during the roughly five-week treatment period were still there when they checked back in three months later. They showed sustained improvements. But the kids who received the standard parent-child interaction therapy, the one that wasn't tailored for callous, unemotional kids, they regressed. And they didn't maintain those gains they had made during treatment. In total, 43 families with children aged 3 to 7 were involved in the study. You know, that was only a three-month follow-up, so at the end of the day, it really is about kind of funding constraints and, and what you're able to do. But that is the next step, is to really see, you know, how long are these improvements being maintained and whether what we're targeting is actually leading to the change. 
So there's reasons to be hopeful. For Nicole's son, Matt, though, any interventions or programs they tried proved futile. The only thing that's ever helped is one child psychiatrist that Matt first met when he was eight years old and has been seeing ever since, 11 years now. Having that consistency of the same person caring for him has been the best part. It's taken a long time, a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but she's probably been the most helpful and beneficial person for him as far as his mental health goes. And does he does he still struggle with sort of anger and violence and, and that kind of thing now? He does. You have good and bad days, but I think over the years he's learnt to possibly deal with it a little better. You know, Matthew would have been locked up in juvie when he was 14, 15, if it wasn't for Shannon. Um, yes, he's a lot better than he used to be, mm-hmm. but he's certainly not a quote, normal person. And so does he still live at home now? Matthew does live at home. We love and adore him and nothing we wouldn't do for him. He has had periods where we've asked him just to leave Mm -hmm. because the violence is just too much. What kind of future do you think Matt will have? The future I would like for him and the future he probably has in mind are probably different. Look, we'd just be happy if Matthew was a law-abiding, normal person that worked. Mm. We don't have any greater expectations than that. Unfortunately, as he's gotten older as well, he's sort of going into the criminal ways and doing illegal things and we're trying to obviously steer him well away from that. But look, we just want him to be happy. Right. So do you do you imagine his future will involve potentially time in jail because of his activities? Potentially, yes, I do. And that's really sad to have to say that. Yeah. But yeah. This, I mean, this must all be so devastating as a mother. You know, like how have you processed this over the years? It is devastating and how have I processed it? I, I, if I didn't have my husband, it, it, I'd be six foot under pushing up daisies. We also are very lucky to have a very close friend group that supporters that we can talk to. We also, of course, have Dr. Shannon. So we've got a lot of backup with that. But yeah, some days it's just too hard. But yeah, my husband just has some amazing patience mm. and tolerance. Again, I'm lost without him. Nicole does worry, though, that all of the violence and upheaval and uncertainty their family has endured has had the biggest impact on their eldest son. I don't like to involve Jake in a lot of what goes on, although he sees a lot. I actually find solace in sitting with him and just talking to him about what's going on with him because I realise now that he missed out on so much when he was younger because of his brother. Never dawned on me at the time, but it has in more recent years. And I I feel enormous regret over that for him. Mm. So I like to spend a bit more time with him now and just my son, eldest is into rock climbing with four wheel drives and is a mechanic. And so we sit and shoot the breeze about that sort of stuff all the time. And that gives me some great comfort doing that with him. And you mentioned a a moment ago that, you know, 
how you love your son, Matt, as well, and you would do anything for him, um, which is really lovely. But I, I guess for people listening who might be like, like you're, you talked about your son punching you in the teeth and, and mm. all of this, it might seem incredible to some people to be able to say that. But how do you maintain that love for your son who does struggle so much? You know, people ask me that and it's a really simple answer for me. He's my son. Mm. He's our son. We gave birth to him. Um, what he deals with and how he is doesn't alter the fact that we love him and we would do anything for him. Look, yes, he's herders. Yes, he's violent. He can be very threatening. He's threatened some awful things over the years. But he is still ours and we do love him. The good moments just overtake the bad sometimes and you start every day as a new day. Yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. And why did you want to share your story today? Like, I can't, I can't imagine it's easy necessarily to talk about, but why did you want to be so forthcoming with your experience? Sometimes people assume that children like Matthew come from dysfunctional homes and, you know, you're drug addicts or you're alcoholics or you're thieves or jailbirds. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not always the case. And it's just people stereotype and mm. I really hate that. So when the police do end up rocking up at our house, you know, they first look at you and, oh, geez, mum and dad are both here. Oh, oh wow. you're both sober. Oh, I can smell food cooking. Oh, that's dinner. So we're not that stereotypical person. Mm -hmm. And there's other people who aren't either. Look, I'll be honest, when I was approached to do this, my first comment was, I need to speak to my family about this. Mm. And I did. And my husband and our eldest son were, go for it, that's great. And our Matt was, mm, yeah, just don't mention my last name, Mum. <laughs> said, that's fine. Once I had their approval, I was fine. But I said to them, if this just helps one person, one family, you know, I Suicide is a huge thing and you can understand once some people go through stuff like this, you just cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I've had those moments and it's not a good place to be. It's mm -hmm. a very dark place and you don't want to be there. So if someone feels like that today and they listen to this and that gives them that, you know what, I can keep going, I can keep doing this, then that's what's important. And I think that's what I explained to my boys mm. and why they were so supportive. That's it for All in the Mind. I want to say a massive thank you to Mum Nicole for sharing her family's story and a big thank you as well to psychiatrist Dr John Cassanathan and psychologist Professor Eva Kimonis. This episode was produced by Jennifer Leake and myself, with additional editing help from Rose Kerr. Our sound engineer was Russell Stapleton.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.